Hello, it is Sunday, December 4th. It is Selection Sunday in college football. I'm Zach Barnett. With me is John Bryce. John, how are you? ZB, good to join you, buddy. And uh, I'm doing well. I'm wearing my Jock Peterson tribute. We just might be those world champs. I'm wearing my play like a champion hat because I picked like a champion. And I am relishing victory, especially over Scott. Nobody has talked more smack then we all three specifically made plans to have a 1 p.m. Eastern noon central podcast this morning. And after Scott's defeat was wrapped up, he's mysteriously not here. Some people might say he's doing a very noble thing and attending mass, but it looks to me like he's tuck tail and run. He, he was never in first place. I believe at any point in the season and, uh, was still talking more smack than, than anyone. So, uh, yeah, he is a he. He's at a high. He's at a hole in Saudi Arabia somewhere right now, as he should be. All right, John. So the field is set. It is as first reported exclusively at Nuggets. It will be Ohio State against Georgia in the uh, in the Peach Bowl at night as we ring in New Year's Eve, and then the the early game is Michigan TCU in the Fiesta Bowl. John, did the committee get it right? I'm, I'm a little bit torn. Uh, I really am. The committee absolutely got the four right teams. They did. Um, I probably would have had Ohio State three and TCU four. Uh, and that's just having a little bit more respect overall for the Big Ten this year than probably the Big 12. Um, as I saw Oklahoma State be so disappointing over the course of the year. Texas had some really strong moments and then some really head-scratching moments. Uh, ditto for Baylor. Um, now, Kansas was a, a really remarkable surprise story for a lot of the season, but I just think the Big Ten was better. So, um, And I would have loved the deliciousness of four weeks of waiting for an Ohio State-Michigan rematch. And um, so for, for those reasons, I would have swapped the seating at three and four, but they unequivocally and absolutely got the four correct teams. So were you as annoyed by I was of everyone this weekend, including Nick Saban himself, trying to gin up some controversy to try and get Alabama into this thing? Yeah, and I, and I was. I was completely annoyed by all the convoluted and extrapolated conspiracy theories that would have Alabama in it. Look, I think Alabama is one of the four best teams in college football. I absolutely believe that, especially the way that the Tide closed the season uh, and as healthy as they are now. But – Look, they've got two wins fewer than TCU. They did not play for a conference championship. Uh, and, and you have all those factors to me that, that made them a, a non-issue. Like like we said on the podcast Friday, as long as TCU was not blown out, I didn't see a scenario where the Horn Frogs were going to be left out. And that's exactly what we saw with, with Southern Cal. Southern Cal got to play for its conference championship chip one more win than Alabama still and played for its league title. There's no mention of Southern Cal being uh, falsely left out. That tells you all you need to know. This was all about, uh, to me, you made a, a great turn of phrase there saying ginning up. This was ESPN ginning up its love affair with the SEC. Okay, so I'm going I'm to launch into my rant here, and you touched on it a little bit. You said Alabama is one of the four best teams, and on their best day, Maybe they are. Maybe they are. But when we're talking about the four best teams, what are we really talking? Are we saying we're saying that they have more talent on their team than TCU does, than even maybe Ohio State does? And I'm not going to sit here and disagree with that. Years from now, we'll look back and see how many players are drafted from this team. And 
Who knows? Maybe 2022 Alabama has more than anyone else. But if you go to the 24-7 team composite rankings, which is the best tool we have to evaluate who the most talented teams are in college football, at number one, you'll find Alabama. At number two, you'll find Georgia. At number three, you'll find Ohio State. At number four, Texas A&M. I don't see anybody arguing that Texas A&M was screwed out of making the playoff because they were one of the four best teams in the sport. They were screwed out of they weren't screwed out of the Birmingham Bowl. They weren't screwed out of the Weed Eater Bowl. That team went 5 and 7 and was a bad 5 and 7. Michigan, the undisputed number 2 team is according to 24/7 the 14th best team in college football. And I'm not one of those people that believes that I I I'd take a three star with heart over five star. Stars matter. But at the end, when we're 13 weeks into the season, what you did or did not do on the field matters more. And even Nick Saban himself bought into the my least favorite form of argument was, well, we'd be favored in Vegas. Yeah. The the point of the the people who make this argument are the people who should know better. Vegas, the Vegas line exists for Vegas to make money, to play on the public's confidence to make money. And I'm sure Vegas would have loved to make Alabama a pick'em with Georgia and then built a new casino when Georgia blew out Alabama. And I mean, if Vegas was Vegas gets it right more than the average person, but Vegas doesn't get it right every time. If Vegas knew that Michigan was going to beat Ohio State by 23 points, 22 points, don't you think they would have made the line Michigan minus 21? Who would have bet Michigan minus 21 going into that game? No one. And then they would they would have a built a new Las Vegas on top of the existing Las Vegas off of that line. So I hate that argument, and the only people who make it are people who should know better, including Nick Saban. And so uh, that's my argument. I think TCU deserves to be a, above Ohio State, and I think the committee got it right. All right, there you go. I uh, appreciate the fervor and passion for which you just delivered that Shakespearean s- soliloquy. Um, <laughs> I would uh, I, I would tend to agree with you on, on talent uh, assimilation and, and compilation, but I also uh, have worked for 247 and worked for rivals previously in my career. The the star ratings aren't infallible. No, uh, the, the, NFL draft, well, the NFL draft, however, will bear out along those lines. And, and for that reason, um, I'm not sure there's a team that's underachieved more this year than Alabama. This going into the season, we talked about it on this very podcast. I talked with other writers. I talked with, frankly, directly with SEC personnel directors who felt this might be Nick Saban's best team ever, might be Nick Saban's most talented team ever. And we never we never really saw that Alabama this year. We never saw um, very much dominance in some of Alabama's more competitive games. And from, from very early in the season, when um, on, we talked about on the podcast, Texas would go into that fourth quarter uh, with it being a tight game. Now, Texas went into that fourth quarter – really should, should, have, should have having won that game. And so um, the other issue I would raise here, and you touched on it briefly, I find it despicable that um, there's been all this outro- outrage about gambling in the NCAA, and, and there's still states that don't want to pass or legalize gambling. There's all these concerns. There's all these educational seminars that are mandatory for all student athletes on every campus to attend as it pertains to the gambling in NCAA. And then you have a guy out there stumping for his team based on what Vegas would do. Is that not the pinnacle of hypocrisy? Yeah, I I, I respect Nick Saban stumping for his team, but that that to me that's right. a low. Uh, he he should be he should be better than that. 
Yeah, that, that, that wasn't stomping. That wasn't stomping. That was shoveling. That was shoveling, and you know what he was shoveling. Yeah. So to your point, uh, you touched on Alabama was a three touchdown favorite against Texas. Barely won that game. Alabama was a twelve and a half point favorite over LSU. Lost that game. And now let's pivot back to uh, what happened on the field. Al- LSU will struggle to remain in the top twenty after losing their fourth game, uh, their second consecutive game, emphatically. But they did throw for five hundred yards against Georgia. And next up, Georgia is going to face an Ohio State team that can throw the ball around. Is that cause for concern if you're Georgia, considering what you just saw, a, a pedestrian LSU team throw the ball all over the yard against you? I think it's it would be of greater concern if that game was next weekend or even in 10 days. Um, I've, I've touched on this before. I'm a huge believer in it. Um, this is where you see the superior staff sizes at several of these programs, and Alabama and Georgia specifically come to mind. With all the off-field analysts that they have, with all the guys that they have incorporated into their programs that have been coordinators at other schools on either side of the ball um, that maybe get tucked away in analyst positions, a Mike Bobo, for example, or a year ago it was Will Muschamp on Georgia's staff as an analyst after having been a highly successful defensive coordinator and a moderately successful at times head coach in the SEC. So for all of those reasons, I think that um, there's not a great level of concern. And also we haven't seen, in my opinion, enough consistency out of the Ohio State running game. And we'll have several weeks to to hash out this matchup. Uh, and a lot of LSU's yards, I think, came last night when Georgia mm-hmm. had that contest very well in hand and was really playing a lot of base defense. And, and frankly, trying not to get guys uh, ejected, trying not to get guys hurt, and, and trying to just get out of there and move on. That game was decided by halftime, and Georgia knew that. And I think Georgia substituted liberally and I think Georgia just sort of uh, evolved into a, not a prevent defense, but um, just sort of a defense and an offense designed to make the clock run as quickly as possible. Yeah. A- another game that was, uh, well, it-, it was more competitive than that, but it was it was not close by the end was the Big Ten championship game. And I, I, were, did you make it to this game? I know you talked about going. No, I ended up uh, not making it. Um, the logistics just couldn't get worked out. I I wanted to go, and uh, even Saturday morning we were discussing it, but it didn't end up happening. So, um, but I, I I did stay glued in on the television. So that was the ninth, I believe it's the ninth straight time the East team has beaten the West champion in the Big Ten championship game, and most of those games, the majority of those games, have not been closed. At least uh, the last two that Michigan's been in. So. Uh, Watching these games, and, and certainly once uh, once Utah knocked USC out, it was pretty clear that the field was set. So I spent a lot of yesterday just really watching it towards with an eye towards 2024. And one thing's absolutely clear is that a 2024 version of Purdue would not be in this game. I believe the Big Ten, like the SEC, is going to eliminate divisions to get its top two teams in the play into its championship game. And so you might have had a Michigan-Ohio State rematch in Indianapolis last night, which is kind of awkward for everyone, but kind of also unavoidable if you want to get your best two teams in. Yeah, and uh, to your point, asking about any concern with Georgia's secondary after all the passing yards that that were allowed, I would point instead to uh, some concern with the Michigan secondary. Um, And look, I don't think there's a a better college quarterbacks coach in America than what Brom does at Purdue. Uh, and, And you had noted very well how successfully he has navigated his program as a huge underdog against top three teams. He'd been 3-0 and prior to last night. And you could just see uh, that 
Purdue really had a good game plan against Georgia. And if Purdue isn't settling for field goals, I mean, excuse me, Purdue had a great game plan against Michigan. And if Purdue's not settling for field goals in all those red zone trips, then this is a nail-biter game going into the fourth quarter. Now, that's testament to Michigan's defense bowing its back. But Purdue found a lot of success through the air with Blau at the trigger and um, did some really, really good things. He threw for nearly 400 yards, I think, and um, had a couple of picks. One of them, he forced the ball. One of them was just a nice play. But I thought that Purdue exposed some vulnerability in the uh, Michigan secondary that Ohio State exposed a little bit. But when Ohio State similarly had to settle for field goals and Michigan countered with touchdowns, then that's where Michigan has you exactly where it wants you. So uh, from that perspective, it's going to be interesting to see how TCU can attack them because TCU has the best passing attack in the Big 12. I don't think it's particularly close. And with uh, with getting Quentin Johnston back, he looked pretty darn healthy. He had, I think, five catches for 136 yards. Um, he had a bad fumble that in the end probably cost TCU the game. But he looked healthy. You got Tay Barber, who's as explosive as anybody. Max Duggan really struggled. Uh, to throw the ball. I thought the TCU offensive line really struggled to, to protect Duggan, especially because K-State was bringing the house and they struggled to move the line of scrimmage. So I think that's going to be a really fun game to watch. And I believe it's the first playoff game since tw- the 2019 Peach Bowl between LSU and Oklahoma that's going to pit two teams that have never won a playoff game against each other. So whoever wins that one will get a will get new blood in the championship game. And I could see TCU winning that game. Uh, they're going to go in as underdogs, but if, if Max Duggan is on point, uh, competitively he was at 100% uh, yesterday, just left it all out on the field. But accurately, why, you know, in terms of throwing the ball, he only hit 50% of his passes. So if he plays better, TCU can absolutely defeat Michigan. Yeah, and uh, allow me to correct myself. It's obviously Aiden O'Connell. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I said loud, just confusing my recent year. Purdue quarterbacks, but I, I did want to double check that real quickly. Purdue actually outgained Michigan in that contest, Zach, by about 80 yards um, and had a six to seven minute time of possession edge. And, and um, O'Connell threw for right at 370 yards. So, again, I think there's some significance in, to that. And I also still think that, um, again, if if TCU can jump out early on, on Mich- Michigan instead of the way that we've seen it, well, where TCU has been such a great team that never quits and always rallies and believes until the very end that it's going to find a way to win. But if it flips that script, then I think that's a great recipe for success for TCU because I'm still not convinced that this Michigan team can be a come-from-behind team. And I don't think that Michigan uh, has really had to overcome a two-touchdown deficit at any point this season. And, and if TCU is a team that could get up 20-7, to 21-7 in the first half of that game, that changes every dynamic for me. Whoever wins turn the turnover battle in, in the Fiesta Bowl is going to win that game. I'll, I'll make that that guarantee before uh, God and John Bryce right now. All right, so we touched on the four playoff teams. Let's let's move around. Uh, let's start with the ACC. Is Clemson in the playoff if Dabo had started Cade Klubnik uh, after that Georgia Tech game? Um, that's a great question, and probably he would be. Um, I don't know if they would – if, if after the Georgia Tech game, I know you felt very strongly then, then what we saw out of Kate Klubnick was uh, going to be an issue. I thought that the DJ by no means uh, had done anything to lose his job in that game. 
But I will say after they lost to Notre Dame, uh, if he had inserted Kate Klubnick and gone down the stretch, then yeah, they probably are. Because again, they would be a 12 and one conference champion sitting there instead of an 11 and one Ohio state team. And at that point in time, we're talking about which team is better versus which team has done more. And Clemson would have been the team to do more. Clemson would have won a power five championship. And I don't think there's any scenario where a power five conference champion with one loss would be left out in favor of a power five non-conference champion with one loss that by the way, happened to be uh, by double digits and going away at home Uh, to, to Clemson's credit. It's, it's bad loss was here in South Bend on the road to Notre Dame. And um, otherwise, yeah, I think Cade Klubnick leads uh, leads Clemson past South Carolina a week ago, and we saw Cade Klubnick quite literally lead Clemson to the ACC title last night. So, yeah, um, if, if Clemson's 12-1 and one and ACC champs, then they're in over Ohio State. I absolutely believe that. And then that would have given us one of our great um, old regional rivalries um, that I grew up watching every time they played, and that was uh, Clemson and Georgia. And that's those teams aren't separated by much. There's absolute hatred and animosity between those programs and those fan bases, and that would have been a, a very delightful 1-4 playoff matchup. Uh, instead, Clemson will more than likely, uh, I think we can go ahead and say, uh, even though it hasn't been announced, it'll be Clemson-Tennessee in the Orange Bowl. And I assume Cade's going to start that game, and it'll be – a opportunity for for Dabo to kind of reset the narrative if, if they if he if they're able to win that game and Cade plays well going into 2023 uh, in the Sun Belt Championship we saw another unfortunate example of a uh, what I think not to take anything away from Troy but it's hard to ignore when your head coach is leaving and you go out and lay an egg I mean Coastal was just flattened early against Troy they made the score respectable but they never made the game interesting and now uh Jamie Chadwell's on his way to Liberty, and Troy is your uh, Sun Belt champion. Yeah, and um, we've said it before on the podcast, and I know uh, Scott has a great relationship with him. I've gotten to know him a little bit, but there, I don't know if there's a, a many better guys in the sport than John Sumrall. So just uh, thrilling to see this type of success for him and what he's done in such short order there. Um, and, and Troy has a strong heritage in the Sun Belt Conference. Um, it's regained its prominent placement thanks to John Summerall and it was a thoroughly dominant performance and the 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 final score doesn't remotely indicate the thorough beatdown um that Troy put on Coastal Carolina and interesting to me is um Chad Staggs is a highly regarded defensive coordinator at Coastal Carolina potential replacement uh or, or was considered you know very highly thought of and and his unit just got exposed yesterday I mean Troy kind of did at will what it wanted to against Coastal Carolina and Chad Stagg's defense. In the MAC title game, there was uh, there was chatter going into the game that Jason Candle was coaching for his job, and there was uh, chatter during the game that he might be on his way out the door to, to South Florida, and uh, we know now he's not because Alex Golish has taken that job. But we also know that Jason Candle is not going to get fired, or at least he should not be because Toledo is the uh, 2022 MAC champion over an Ohio team that has been, you know, arguably the, the Mac's strongest program over the last 10, 15, you know, years, but still has not won that conference since 1969. Yeah, and, and tough because I don't think anybody was playing better than Ohio, but they had the quarterback go down injured last weekend. And to me, that was the entire difference in the game. And so uh, 
Toledo circled the Rockets and found a way to to win the title. Um, but it doesn't, to me, obscure what Tim Alden and company were able to do this season for the Bobcats. Just a tremendous turnaround. Remember, a year ago, he had to take over the program in, in midsummer after Frank Solich retired uh, and, and suffered through an incredibly difficult uh, first year as the Bobcats head coach. Went and made some offensive staff changes. We touched on those last week on the pod. Those guys did a great job, and um, that was a fun Ohio team to watch. I thought it was a great year of action on those Tuesday, Wednesday night games that we got to see the last six, seven weeks of the season. Um, and Ohio is going to a bowl game and has to feel really good about the trajectory of its program. And Jason Candle, yeah, there was all that talk about USF. I think he interviewed as well for the Cincinnati position. Um, but it looks like, and, and let's not forget a year ago, he could have left to become Miami's offensive coordinator um, before that job ultimately went to Josh Gaddis. And so, um, there have been some questions about Candle and his future. He's kind of answered those, um, but then it'll be curious to see how that program pivots forward into 23. In the American title game, uh, one of the feel-good stories of, of college football this season was was completed as Tulane went from 2-10 and 10 to now 11-2 and two conference champions. They'll play USC in the, in the Cotton Bowl, and they were able to avenge their home loss. The, they earlier in the year in November they were upset that game day didn't come, and they ended up losing that game when they hosted UCF. Got them back at Yulman Stadium. It, was, it looked like a packed house to me. It looked like an awesome scene, and it was great to see uh, Tulane send UCF out of the American as uh, title game losers, and Tulane won that conference for the first time. Yeah, and um, Tulane's first conference championship anywhere I believe since 1998. Um, yes. <clears throat> and so uh, what stood out to me about that was the way that the Tulane program dialed in its focus. You know, it was a week ago today that it looked like everything had Willie Fritz going to Georgia Tech. <clears throat> the Yellow Jackets offered him the job and then it just sort of uh, fizzled apart from there. But but to block out those distractions and you touched on it earlier, what this Tulane t- team did to block out the distractions of this week, um, I think is testament to the leadership from the top down and the culture within that locker room. On Friday night in the Conference USA Championship game, uh, UTSA successfully defended and emphatically defended their conference title, beating North Texas 48-27. Frank Harris is just a baller. He he threw for four touchdowns, ran for another. Uh, They won the Conference USA title game two years in a row, scoring 49 and 48 points. Uh, At at one point this season, I mean, they were were held together with duct tape. They were especially on the offensive line, UTSA was. And here they are, eleven and two, and uh, back-to-back conference USA champions. And North Texas is North Texas having lost that game is in a really interesting spot because um, you know Seth is his his contract Seth Luttrell's contract expires after next season. So if he's going to return, they're going to need to get something done. And now they're seven and six, and you lose the bowl game, and you're seven and seven. And a lot of people in Denton are not you know satisfied with Seth, uh, coming off a six and six season six and seven season to be potentially seven and seven. I don't know where that goes. And so um, Ren Baker has, has left. He's now the AD at West Virginia. So the AD job is open. Uh, Jared Mosley is the internal candidate to take over. I believe he's, he's certainly the favorite, although uh, it's not a guarantee that he gets that job. So I don't really have a, a conclusion to this other than to say, keep your eye on North Texas. Cause I could see this going a number of, of different ways here in the next couple of weeks. 
Yeah, and I, and I absolutely don't have my finger on the pulse the way that you do, Zach. And you're there in the in the Metroplex, and you do a, a great job of really having some wonderful contacts all around there. I will say that the chatter in other regions of the country ha- has percolated around um, the fact that that North Texas needed to find a way to win that championship game this weekend in order to fill any kind of semblance of stability and comfort moving forward um, as conference championship champions. And without that, then you know, and I know that I'm not forecasting a change will definitely be made, but if a change is made, watch for Justin Fuente. Uh, In the Mountain West title game, uh, Fresno State, it's my theory, and I, I believe for the people in Fresno agree with this, that there's no sweeter win if you're a Fresno State Bulldog than winning a Mountain West title on the blue turf at Boise. And they did that in a – it was kind of a weird game. They were up 28-9, to I believe it was. Final score was 28-16. But yet at the same time, Fresno did it with only 245 yards of total offense. So uh, hats off to Jeff Tedford and his Bulldogs. Yeah, and I don't think any of us really believe that uh... – Fresno State could win that game or would win that game. Um, and I said <clears throat> for the Bulldogs to have a chance that Jake Hayner would have to have a great game, the quarterback. And, and he's gamey, and I saw his one touchdown throw, and it, it was a thing of beauty. I mean, he he fits it through a window um, going towards the goalpost in the back of the end zone, just over the linebacker in front of the defensive back. I mean, it's a throw that you work, and it's got to be executed perfectly. And that was a huge moment in the game when they got that passing touchdown to create some separation, but he only had like 180 passing yards and that one touchdown. So um, surprisingly enough, Fresno state did it with its defense. And we had seen a completely different Boise offense down the stretch with Dirk Cutter calling the plays as offensive coordinator. Um, But Fresno state schemed them up and really frustrated the Bronx. Okay. Let's end the podcast where the weekend began for all intents and purposes with the PAC 12 championship game. And uh, all eyes were on USC. If they won, if they won, they they would be in the field today. And they uh, most certainly did not. They looked like they were threatening to blow Utah out early. Uh, had a lead 14-3. Had a first and goal with an opportunity to go up 21-3. Settled for a field goal. Then forced a turnover as their defense has just, you know, at that point they were minus, or plus 23 in turnover margin, and instead went uh, went went four and out, I believe it was. And then from there, it was a pretty close game. It was 27-24 after uh, USC scored early fourth quarter. And then from that point on, it was just an avalanche. It was uh, Utah scored two-play 75-yard touchdown, and there was a Caleb Williams interception, then a three-play 61-yard touchdown, then a USC fumble, then a three-play 38-yard touchdown to get your 47-24 final score. And I, I think I, I think it was the right result. This USC team vastly improved from a year ago also had no business making the college football playoff yeah not not with that performance friday night and what it underscores to me zach and you know it well um there in in big 12 territory is a theme that we've heard about lincoln's teams through the years and that is a lack of physicality and they absolutely got big boyed by utah on friday night and utah wanted it more uh we should have listened more to kyle whittingham because he told us going into the week that those guys were absolutely playing with the chip on their shoulder um, because he said, quote, we're not even supposed to play the game, are we? They've already given it to them. And and I joked, you know, he had more like a sequoia on their shoulders than a chip. Um, and they played that way. And they absolutely hammered USC in the mouth and, and really punished them with physicality. 
that to me is going to be a fascinating dynamic that will continue to unfold. How much stronger uh, and more physical can Lincoln get his team by 2023? He already had a tremendous roster flip uh, from 22 to or from 21 to 22. Um, and then how does that transition uh, extrapolate itself in a couple of years into the Big Ten, where you're going to have more Michigans and, and more teams that play ball that resembles Utah? than you do more teams that play ball that resemble an Oregon or an Arizona State in the Big Ten. So I'm fascinated by that dynamic, but I give all the credit to Utah. And, I mean, they absolutely – I mean, that was a that was a schoolyard fight, and at that point in time, uh, the bully uh, became Utah. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I wrote about the, the Sequoia, to borrow your term, on Kyle Whittingham's shoulder. I, I talked about it, and then I picked USC. So that's why uh, your boy right here, I believe, got last place in the picks. So the, it, it, on Lincoln Riley, so the, the, one of the the criticisms, the valid criticisms that Oklahoma State, Oklahoma fans had when they were still in their bargaining phase after he left, which is ended up being true, was that Oklahoma got further away from the national championship the larger, the longer he stayed. In 2017, they make one more play on defense. I'm convinced they beat Alabama and they win the national championship. He keeps Mike Stoops, and then in 2018, he has the best offense he'll, he's ever had, probably the best offense he'll ever have, and then they make the playoff anyway and get blown off the field uh, by Alabama early and lose 45-34 to a game that wasn't really that close. By that point, Ruffin McNeil was calling plays because he'd fired Mike midseason after they lost to Texas. If he fires Mike Stoops after that 2017 season, Oklahoma might very well be the 2018 national champions. So uh, as we all know, he hired Alex Grinch. The defense improved, but the team got further away from winning the national title. Brings Alex Grinch with him to USC. Vast improvement, but defensively, they're not good enough to to play with the big boys. So now one of the biggest questions in college football moving forward in my mind is, does Lincoln Riley bring Alex Grinch back? And if not, who does he bring in to bring more size, more strength, more physicality? to that USC defense. Cause if not, if, if so, USC could be in, in the 2023 playoff. If not, they're not going to make it. They're certainly not going to win it. Sounds right. good, Zach. I'll let you sign us off. I'm going to take this phone call. From- <laughs> yeah. That's the appropriate end. We are uh, the, the real world. The carousel is spinning at 300 miles an hour. So that's it for us today. Uh, stay tuned to footballscoop.com. Uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies. I See ya. I haven't seen it. I was just.